Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today as we delve into the second chapter, or not second chapter, the second letter of Corinthians, that is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, the second letter, and we are in the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians. So glad you could join us. Hope you've been with us for our study through, well, through numerous parts of scripture, but at this point, uh, 2 Corinthians. And I would encourage you, if you're just joining us for the first time, back up, start at chapter one. It'll help lay a foundation and a background that'll, um, well, that'll give hopefully some enlightenment on the situation and the dynamics at play in what we're reading today talking about the church and the dynamics there and and issues and the the things that Paul addresses. So if you've been part of the journey through scripture with us that we're taking, I'm glad to have you on board. Encourage you to stay the course, stay in God's word. If you're new to this, then welcome. We're glad to have you, whether you're a a committed follower of Christ or you're just kind of curious, you're welcome. Glad you can be part of this. Now, as we turn our attention to the text, let's first off turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for the scriptures that you have given us and preserved through the years, that we might study them, that we might hear your voice speaking to us through them. Lord, we thank you that they are a a reflection and a revelation of yourself and of who Christ is as our Savior and Lord, as as your gift to redeem us, your gift of yourself to redeem us from the price of our sin. Father, we thank you for saving us through Christ, drawing us to you. Lord, we thank you for your word, that in studying it, we can hear your voice. We can sense your spirit speaking to our hearts, challenging us not to be who we are at our base nature, but to be transformed by the very presence of your spirit in our lives. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is trusting in you. Amen. In looking at the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, we're continuing with Paul's letter to that church at Corinth. Um, It's not his first letter. It's not even his second letter, although it is labeled 2 Corinthians. But yet we think it's probably his third letter to the church, since he references a second letter prior to this. We're picking up in the middle of a discussion. Paul, in the 8th chapter, broached the subject with the Corinthian church of their collection for the saints of the believers back in Jerusalem. That is, the Jewish or Hebraic background Christians there in Jerusalem that were suffering under persecution, that were struggling financially. There were lots of issues, as, as we covered in the previous chapter study. I won't rehash all those right now. But... There was a need, and a year earlier, the church at Corinth had boldly committed and with eagerness committed to take up a collection to send to Jerusalem to help them in this time of need. And now things have come to the point where Paul is 
actually sending Titus and a couple of other unnamed individuals that are still described as being respected by the church and, and highly regarded. They're being sent ahead of Paul. He's in Macedonia, northern Greece at this point, and he is sending them on ahead to Corinth, which is in southern Greece. And then he will be following. And the ninth chapter is directed very much towards the church at Corinth in how they are to behave or what his expectations are, if you will, of them when this delegation arrives prior to Paul there. So let's pick up in the ninth chapter. Again, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation because, well, it's a translation I'm not that familiar with. So it causes me to pay a little more attention to what I'm reading, whereas reading words I'm familiar with hearing sometimes, I don't know if you experience it, but I sometimes begin to tune out a little bit. I assume I know what it says, so I don't pay that much attention to what it says. And So for my own personal edification, I'm using the New Living Translation. So it reads this way. I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help, and I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece, uh, technically Achaia, southern Greece, were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. Now, a little history there. Uh, yes, the church at Corinth, they were excited. They they boldly wanted to start this offering, and it did fire up the churches in northern Greece, Macedonia. The Macedonian churches were much poorer than Corinth. Corinth was a wealthy city, and there's evidence that many of the believers in the church at Corinth um, possessed substantial wealth. The Macedonians didn't have that experience. They tended to be a church that experienced maybe some more persecution, that just had less resources. And yet, we find out in chapter 8, the previous chapter, that the Macedonian church wound up begging Paul to allow them to give more than what they had already given. And they had already given what was, well, what was quite reasonable for them. They went from giving out of their abundance to, to truly sacrificing. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth of that in the eighth chapter. So as we get to the ninth chapter, he's reminding them again that it was their eagerness, their desire there in Corinth to begin this offering that inspired that kind of generosity in the Macedonian church. Well, that is a reminder that the Corinthian church needed. They had been through many struggles. They had started chasing after some false teachers, embracing some behaviors that were contrary to, to Scripture, contrary to God's will, even contrary to what was acceptable among the pagans. And so they had come through quite a bit in the last year. Now Paul is giving them the opportunity to get back to where they were in regards to their giving, in regards to understanding this whole concept of stewardship, 
of managing the resources that God blesses us with. Let's pick up in verse 3. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready, as I have been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if the Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So, I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But, I want it to be a willing gift, not one that is given grudgingly. Now, Paul puts some parameters on it there. And I know people like rules because when we have a set of set rules, a structure of rules, then, well, frankly, our human nature tends to look for the loopholes in those rules. But what Paul is presenting to the church at Corinth is that reminder, hey, this was your commitment from the beginning. This was your commitment that inspired others to be committed to this. You boldly committed. He says, okay, I'm sending these brothers, that would be Titus and the two others, to be sure that you really are ready. In other words, I'm giving you a chance ahead of time to get your ducks in a row, in essence. And he points out that, look, I've been boasting about you. It's It's been something that has inspired others, the story of what you were going to do. Don't let it be that I get there and you haven't done it because then it's embarrassing for me. It's embarrassing for you. He's calling them back to that original commitment, giving them a challenge and an opportunity here. The the subtext is almost, well, if you haven't been focusing on this, you've got a little bit of time, but you need to get it taken care of. But then he stops in that train of thought. He backs up a little bit, and he tells them that last statement of verse 5, but I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. In other words, I don't want you to do this with any sort of bitterness in your heart. I would, oh, we've got to do this. Oh, let's take up this collection. No, he wants them to really approach it with a sincerity and a willingness He's calling them back to that willingness they had to begin with before they went through all the junk that's been going on in the church that he's had to correct them on, back to who they were. Uh, In my mind, it almost echoes, or uh, foreshadows maybe would be a better term, the letter inspired in that vision of, of John's revelation that letter to the church at Ephesus where they're commended for so many things, but then they're reminded to return to their first love that they were doing all these wonderful things and they were showing love to their community and they were doing, but he says, you've lost your first love. That is you have, you have turned away from your love for God. It's no longer the thing that drives you. You're still doing a lot of good stuff. But the reason behind it has shifted. Here, Paul is telling the church at Corinth, you made this commitment. You had your heart in the right place. Your mind set on the right thing. 
and then you've become distracted by all of these other issues. There was there was immorality in the church. There was infighting in the church over who follows who and who was discipled by who or baptized by who. And, and there were debates over which teachers were worth following. And, and all of this has happened in the life of the church, but they've gotten through it. And he's reminding them to return to that attitude before Christ that they had back then, before all of that, that even though they've come through all that, they don't have to jettison who they were back before, as, if you will, newer believers, when they had that fire and excitement for Christ, he's calling them back and giving them opportunity to go back willingly. He wants this gift to be what it was in the beginning. He doesn't want them to follow through grudgingly because, well, we said back then, and they have to do it now. So they're being called opportunity. In verse 6, Paul begins to give them an illustration to help them understand this. He says in verse 6, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all your needs. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Now, before I go any further with that text, we need to remember a couple of things because this can so easily get taken out of context. First off, this illustration of a farmer. This is not an investment strategy for the modern world. This isn't send XYZ church a thousand dollars and and God's gonna mysteriously send you a check for ten thousand dollars. Now, can God do that? Sure. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about our faithfulness and our trust in God's faithfulness. The root of all Christian stewardship is rooted in a trust in the faithfulness of God. It is acting not just based on what we see in front of us, but on who we know God is, that we can trust him, that he is faithful. And so we find this story of this farmer that plants only a few seeds. Well, if you don't plant much, not much is going to grow. It's pretty common sense. But then the encouragement that the one that plants generously gets a generous crop. Are we willing to plant with generosity? Not in planting a field, not even in personal investing, because the idea here is that he's encouraging them to plant generously in what they give to help other believers, to help 
their fellow Christians back in Jerusalem. That's the encouragement. That's the planting they're being encouraged to do generously. And he points out that it should be not out of reluctance and not in response to pressure, but governed by our heart. Because, as he quotes from Proverbs here, God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And he goes on in verse 8, And God will generously provide all your needs. Well, that promise is found throughout Scripture. We see that promise, oh, say the sixth chapter of Matthew, the, the Sermon on the Mount, where he uses the, the grass of the field as an illustration, or the birds of the air as an illustration, that God provides for them. How much more so is he going to provide for us? It's about trusting in the faithfulness of God. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. And then verse 9, as the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. That quotation is from Psalm 112. For God, in verse 10, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Now that comment about providing a great harvest of generosity in you, uh, other translations render that as righteousness in you. But the words are along the same lines in their intended meaning. And that is that when we are righteous, we have that proper understanding of all that we have belongs to God. And he has placed us as stewards, as managers over that. And that all that we have is from his hand, whether in the regards of this farmer, whether it's the seed or the bread that's produced after the crop. Either way, we understand it's from God. And it is that mindset, that obedient trust in our Heavenly Father that should shape our choices, much like the church at Corinth. They are being encouraged to let their faith in God, let their trust in his faithfulness, govern their decisions of what to do with their resources. You see, this isn't about some arbitrary standard. It's not give X percentage and you'll be faithful and less than that and you won't be and more than that and you'll be more than faithful. And this is even flying in the face of, of what in the world at that time, especially um, in many parts of the world and in many communities, it was seen that if you were wealthy, you must be right with God, because why else would he bless you with wealth? And if you were in poverty, then you must have done something to upset God, or you must be struggling with some hidden sin or, or something along those lines, because God's punishing you by not giving you wealth. 
where when we look at the New Testament, we look at what Jesus taught, we see something very different. It is not about our circumstance. It's about our faithfulness. And our faithfulness is rooted in God's faithfulness. Think of the servants that were entrusted with the talents. Now, that's not talent as in, you know, an ability to sing on key or whatever. That's talents. It was a a measure of money. They were entrusted with various amounts. And there are three servants, and one of them is chastised because he did nothing with it. He buried it in the ground. But the others all invested it. Why? Because they understood it belonged to their master and that he wanted them to do something with it. We, as followers of Christ, have that same challenge before us. God has entrusted us with the resources at our disposal, whatever they are, whether there's a large quantity of those resources or whether we perceive it as there being very little we are still called to act in faithfulness. And what we see in that parable of the talents is the idea that when we are faithful, even with a little, God will trust us with more. But when we prove ourselves to be untrustworthy with what God has given us to manage, he doesn't bless us with more to manage improperly. So, as a matter of heart, We need to be faithful with what God has entrusted us with. We need to give generously, and we need to do so cheerfully. We need to share freely and give generously to the poor. Why? So that those good deeds will be remembered. In Matthew chapter 5, we're encouraged to let our light so shine before men that they will see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This remembering of their deeds is not about them. It's not about us. It's about our Heavenly Father. When people see us living lives of obedience to Christ, it brings glory to Christ. Because it's not about us. We have received an awesome gift, the gift of salvation, a gift of a right relationship with God. All that we do needs to bring glory to him. So let's be faithful as we seek to follow him. Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth here is to do just the same, to be faithful, trusting in God, and living out a life that brings glory to him and utilizes the resources he has entrusted them with to bring him glory. Now, before we venture into chapter 11, I want to refer us back to that framework of understanding that we find in that parable of the three servants. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 25. In that parable, we see that those that are faithful are blessed with more to manage. And the one who is unfaithful, well, he loses what little he has to manage. With that in mind, let's keep reading in verse 11. Yes, 
you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers. Or excuse me, for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ, and they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. So, what is he talking about? Well, again, he's talking about their generosity. He's talking about how God will take their obedience with the resources he has blessed them with, and how he will multiply that, and it will be for his glory but it will also be for their benefit. And look at the ways he describes that. I mean, he lays it out and says, two good things are going to result from this. Here they are. The first one is that from from this ministry of giving, the needs of the believers in Jerusalem are going to be met, and they're going to glorify God for it. And you may think, well, that's the two. No, that's one. The whole sequence there is they are going to receive this benefit from your generosity. And they're going to understand that it's not about you, that God has provided for them through you, and they are going to glorify God. And isn't that the goal? Again, I refer you back to Matthew chapter five. Their good deeds are to shine before men. Why? So that they will glorify our father in heaven the Holy Spirit at work in our lives is about pointing people to the Father. So, he's reminding them, he's pointing out here, here's the two good things. Number one, they are going to glorify God because God has met their needs through you. But the second one, and the second one's kind of cool, In 13, it says, as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. There it is again. For your generosity to them and, or for your generosity to them and all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. So it is not only going to result in their glorifying God, but it is also going to show that the Corinthians are being obedient to Christ in how they live out their lives that they don't just carry this banner that says we're a Christian, but they don't really do anything to follow Christ. It's going to be evidence for believers around the world at that point, for the churches around the Mediterranean to say, hey, God is at work in the lives of those Corinthians. Yeah, Corinth, that decadent city with all of those temples. And yeah, Those Christians that came out of those pagan backgrounds, many of them worked in the temples or were leaders in those temples, and now their lives are changed. In fact, they're changed to the point they care about us back here in Jerusalem. 
who are suffering. God is working through them. Praise be to God. That's what Paul is showing them. But in 14, we really get to the second part. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. In other words, not only are they going to glorify God, but they are going to lift you up before God. They are going to intercede for you. They are going to be praying for you with a deep affection. They are going to be moved to lift you before God in prayer. And that should be an incredible encouragement to the church at Corinth. For the church at Corinth to know that there are believers in Jerusalem spending time in prayer for them. There are countless stories from missionaries around the world. Uh, I know in, in my denomination, it's it's been a thing for many a decade that there are groups, particularly of ladies in our churches, that are spending time in prayer for missionaries, specifically on their birthdays. They pray otherwise as well, but specifically on their birthdays, they pray for these missionaries stationed around the world, seeking to live for Christ and to share the gospel. And there are countless stories of missionaries when they come home to visit about how God has made that evident on those days, has seen them through struggles they are dealing with, has has delivered them from difficult situations, and the encouragement that it was for them to know that there were people distant lands away that were lifting them in prayer. It is a tremendous thing. And I can't help but believe this would have been, especially given some of the problems that the church had just been through, an incredible joy for the Corinthians to know that other brothers and sisters in Christ were going to be lifting them in prayer. And Paul is just reminding them that this commitment that they had already made over a year earlier was going to result in all of this. It's a great thing. He wants them to understand why there should be joy in their generosity, why it should be their heart and their trust in the faithfulness of God that moves them forward in this endeavor. Now, I don't want to neglect this last verse where Paul says very simply in verse 15, thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. Well, what gift? Is he talking about the gift of the church at Corinth to the church at Jerusalem? Well, not, not really. I think what he's talking about here is the gift that comes back the other way. The gift that God gives us opportunity to be generous with all that he has entrusted us with, but also that that generosity blesses us. That 
all of us are in this together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that as we give out of generosity, trusting in the faithfulness of God to help our brothers and sisters, that that not only causes them to glorify God, but it also moves them to intercede on our behalf, to lift us up before God, to as well, to borrow words from the previous verse, to pray for us with deep affection because of the overflowing grace that God has given us. That is a huge deal. And I think because it's something we can't necessarily label or quantify or, you know, count in some way that we can report on, we sell it short. We begin to not look at our lives and understand the value of having others lift us in prayer or the value of being faithful servants of God and allowing him to use us, our lives, what he has entrusted us with to be a blessing to others so that they rejoice and give glory to God. But when we begin to grasp even the edges of what that means, then I think we can join with Paul in saying, thank God for this gift. Too wonderful for words. This gift from God, his gift that he has given. He's given us Christ, which is the greatest gift, the way of salvation. The opportunity to be made right with God, to have our sins atoned for. But then he also gives us this gift of being faithful stewards. Not only that, but in exercising that stewardship, we cause others to bring glory to God and we receive the benefit of others lifting us in prayer that we inspire that deep affection that Paul talks about. Not because we deserve it, we don't. Not because we're just so wonderful, because we're not. But because we have been faithful and we have been generous because we trust in God for his provision. That's where chapter 9 ends, and that's where we end this evening. I hope this is an encouragement to you. I hope you will spend time chewing over these verses. Only 15 in this chapter, and yet Paul packs a lot in there. A lot that should drive us today in how we view the world, how we interact with one another, how we pray for one another, and that not-so-subtle reminder that we need to be giving the glory to God for all the blessing we see. Let's end with prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the many blessings that you give us. We don't always pause long enough to take stock of what those blessings are. Father, sometimes we barrel through this life in such a way that we, we breeze past them and we don't take note of all that you are doing. And yet, Father, we acknowledge you are the source of all blessing. You use others 
many times as the avenues of that blessing, but we know they come from your hand. And we give you the glory, Father. It is all yours. And Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ as they are living their lives, seeking to bring glory to you, seeking to honor you, to follow you. Father, we lift them to you in prayer right now, asking that you would bless them as they are blessing others. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your blessing. We thank you for the gift of knowing we are not in this world alone, but that you have called all of the redeemed by your name. Father, help us to bring glory to you and to live lives of generosity. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.